Welcome to episode three of the Mindful Owl podcast. This is Daniel Valenzuela. Today I am talking to Dr. Laura Marin Pierce. Dr. Pierce is a PhD in counselor education, associate professor, and program coordinator of counselor education at California State University, Fresno. Dr. Pierce and I discuss counseling and really get into some of her work on relationships between wellness, spirituality, and personal dispositions of practicing professional counselors. I really enjoyed this particular podcast. So without further ado, I give you Dr. Pierce. All right. So I have Dr. Laura Marin Pierce on the line. Dr. Pierce, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure. Yeah. So, well, first, I just want to thank you for everything that you do and how you go about serving our profession and our communities. So thank you. Okay. Um, I think you're doing some great work over at California State University, Fresno. You know, I wanted to ask you last year in August, did you go to the Tara Brock? I How did. I did. As you know, love her work. And so uh, when she was teaching at Spirit Rock, I decided I was going to go. So that was what I did for my birthday. I went and... Was that like a day long? It was a day long. Yeah. Ah, very good. Very good. And then I noticed you're, you've been recently working with... Uh, IBT? Integral yeah. breath therapy. It's different work, um, you know, because we can use breath. We can use breath to regulate and we can use breath to activate. Right. And so, uh, and, and there's room for both. There's, there's space for both. Sometimes we get caught in one camp or the other. Um, and both can be really enticing um, for different reasons. But um, breath work of any kind really is about activation stuff and allowing things, held things to move through, energy to move through, whatever that uh, looks like. And so I actually got exposed to, to breathwork in my master's program mm. and um, didn't actually do my first training until my, the summer after my first year at Fresno State. Uh, and then I've just continued on since then. Ah, are you getting to use that with clients at all? Yeah. Oh, how cool. And I have a few clients who are just breathwork clients, right? That's, they, they don't want kind of more traditional talk therapy. They just want breathwork. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard about it. I know you and I have been, uh, we've still been in touch the past mm -hmm. couple of years here and there. And then I saw that you were doing that. So I was very interested in hearing more about that. Uh, so you were my professor and clinical supervisor in graduate school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you know, also one that has been very influential to me, uh, both personally and professionally, mm -hmm. uh, it's been quite the journey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you can tell our listeners a little about yourself and what you're currently doing. Okay. Um, I, wow, that's, that's a, a big question. Um, yeah. So I, and I'm, I obviously teach at Fresno State, um, and, and the bulk of my work professionally uh, now really centers around uh, trauma work. I, I kind of fell into trauma work kind of naturally. It wasn't something that I um, jumped into counseling to, to do, uh, but it just it, it, literally every client I had had trauma in some way, shape, or form uh, during my training, and so it just kind of became this really natural thing. Um, and something that I enjoyed really diving into the long-term, uh, work of, of trauma. And, and in recent years, I, I think, you know, even I was thinking about this, I've grown a lot since, uh, you know, I had you in class and, and mm -hmm. learned new things. Um, 
And so um, while even when I had you in class, my work was very experiential, we have so much more science around that now. And so really diving in and um, a lot more somatic work, a lot more body work of, of really, really, really being intentional about keeping people present in their bodies through the hard stuff. Mm. Um, and, and the power in that and, and what that does uh, to help folks, um, not only clients, but students, right? How often do you sit in class and just totally um, miss something really maybe pretty huge because, you know, we, you've just checked out. And so, and, and even in terms of your work as a school counselor, right. And, and kids in the classroom and, and how can we, and kids are, kids are way better at staying in their bodies than we are. They don't have the, the decades and decades of training of um, disembodiment. And so, and yet, in so many ways, we've created our classrooms as a means to keep them disembodied instead of keep them in their bodies and, and really, really present in the classroom. Uh, so, yeah, so lots of work around embodiment and somatic work and just staying in the body. Ah, very good. And now, uh, recently, are you, you're also the program coordinator for yeah. the counseling yeah. education program? <laughs> I am. Ah, so when did that take place? Huh? May. Oh, well, congratulations. May. That is so cool. Yeah. First, how would you define and describe counseling to, you know, the, the lay person, someone who doesn't really understand? I know with, I know we're trying to, our profession is trying to, have a unified definition of counseling across all, you know, uh, you know, there's ASCA and, you know, the ACA has their 2020 vision and definition, uh, but we're trying to have a more consistent identity, but how would you define and describe counseling? I really see counseling as a, as a helping relationship um, between a trained individual uh, and another person. And, and the goal of, of that relationship is to promote the, the client's individual wellness across the lifespan. So it's not about solving the problem in that moment, although that's certainly there, right? That's certainly what we're going to do, but it's, it's not like that's the checklist. But, but how can we help that individual gain tools, skills, knowledge, whatever is necessary so that as that person continues to grow and develop, right, there, there's new tools and skills and all of that is in place to, to help promote their wellness across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. um, and so we do that in community agencies and we do that in rehabilitation centers and we do that in schools and we do that in colleges. Um, and so we do that in a variety of settings but I see counseling as, as ultimately we're all kind of coming from that, that place and that's that space. And then what that looks like in settings is, is certainly a bit different and unique. And yet the foundation is the same. Are you still practicing uh, DCT over at Fresno state with your I, I 208 do. students? I do still use DCT with 208. Yeah. Ah, uh, I love that. And, uh, for those of you listening, uh, DCT would be developmental counseling and therapy. And I felt very fortunate to get to do that with you. 
and uh, our class during during that particular year. Uh, as far as being exposed to all the other theories out there and how there's not a necessarily a one size fits all approach, Absolutely you know? Not. So, yeah. You know, you've also done a lot of studying and writing on um, relationships between wellness, spirituality, um, and personal dispositions mm-hmm. among practicing professional counselors. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and where you're at now with that? Cause you said you've grown a lot since then. So I'm wondering if, how you feel about that now? I'm glad you prepped me for this part, if I'm if I'm honest with you, because uh, yeah, what you're referring to really is my dissertation, and and not to say that I've totally totally chunked that, but it's been a few years. Um, so I get sometimes these moments to go back and and reflect on uh, what a friend of mine called his his book report. Um, <laughs> but I, there were some really cool things that came from that. Um, what I I will say there's definitely been some transition since then. The I, It was a mixed method study. Long story short, it was a mixed method study. The, the quantitative stuff isn't great. I really struggled to get numbers from the quantitative stuff. But the qualitative stuff, there were some cool things in there. Um, there were some pieces around colleagues and, and relationships with colleagues and, and needing spaces for consulting, right? And needing spaces for release. Mm-hmm. Right. I've just, you know, for self-care purposes, I just need to put this out there, but that needed to be a safe space and a confidential space. Right. And being really aware of that. The other thing that really stood out to me in those interviews as I was doing them, uh, one of the questions was around um, crisis. Like when there's a, a crisis or a significant thing that happens in your work, how do you handle that? And um, every single person I interviewed used the phrase, I know I did the right thing. Mm. It, it, like literally, it was the exact phrase. And, and there was kind of this point of, there's two ways of looking at it. And, and I've talked with a few folks about it. One is that, it, <clears throat> and I didn't actually write about this, is, is one is it could be just bypass right? Sometimes, sometimes I think we feign surrender in order to avoid the hard stuff that's really there. Are you also referring, are you referring to spiritual bypass or just bypass in general? Could be spiritual bypass. Mm. But it could just be a means of avoiding, Mm -hmm. right? Thus bypassing. Or it could be that there really does have to be this point of, okay, I know I did all of this, I did everything I could, right? Yeah. Set it down. It's what CPS does, what, you know, whoever, whoever this been turned over to at this point, the bulk of them were around CPS calls um, Mm -hmm. or the licensing board. That was another one. A couple of of those, whatever those, those entities decide to do. I, I did what I, what I could. Right. Um, and so I don't know which, which way that is. That would be a place for some further exploration that I haven't done. Um, but that phrase was really significant and really important. Yeah, absolutely. In reading, reading that, you've also talked a lot about, you know, counselor wellness, mm-hmm. and you've sort of gave some definitions of wellness um, versus counselor impairment. Um, you know, the idea that practicing professional counselors should always be working toward optimal well-being. 
mm-hmm. because, you know, you talked about how you're, you do a lot of trauma work. Well, although our clients can bring a lot of trauma into the room, in my case, our students are bringing a lot of trauma into the room. Oh gosh, right. Um, but yeah. so do, so can we. Absolutely. Right. And <laughs> so do teachers are also bringing a lot into the room. So that has implications for a lot of different pr- professions, whether or not you, you are impaired. Um, so I think that's why I really enjoyed reading your dissertation because, um, you know, if you're an impaired teacher, for example, you can be, sometimes I have more concerns for the teacher than I do some of the students I'm working with. I mean, you know, just, and, and how that impacts their effectiveness towards what they're doing with the students. Um, you can actually do a lot of harm to your client if you're not always working toward optimal well-being. So that's kind of what, what you were getting at, right? Yeah. And, and I think that we've, I mean, we have new, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about kind of the, the, the things that are, are stirring for me at the moment in terms of, of research and curiosity and teaching and, and, and that sort of stuff. I mean, as we start to look at what's happening and around things like uh, Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory and neuroception and, and what's actually happening in the relationship between two people at a neurophysiological level. Right. And so, so literally like when you talk about bringing your own trauma to, to the relationship, right. The counseling relationship, how regulated at a physiological level is the counselor in the session? Right. Because if, if, if I get a little dysregulated, my, my client picks up on that. From a, a, a mirror neurons perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I, I really like about Stephen Porges' work, if you've not looked into it, it's, it's, it's really crazy cool stuff, um, is, is he's shifting from this idea of the client-centered relationship, which is where we've, we've put all, like, banked everything on this client-centered relationship, right? The yeah. client-centered relationship to the present-centered relationship. Because how can I walk into a session and ask my client to be fully present with me if I'm leaving pieces of myself outside the door? Now, that doesn't mean that I don't bracket values and those types of things, right? But if, right. if I'm setting aside who I am, how can I expect the other person in the room to be fully present with me if I'm not fully present? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then it becomes more about instead of, wow, this, something just, just stirred in me. I need to shut that down right now in session, right? At which point you disconnect from the relationship with your client to shut down whatever's coming up for you, mm. right? To how do I, how do I be with you and know, okay, so this is stirring for me. Okay. That's there. I see you. I hear you, right? Whatever it is. I see you. I hear you. Yeah. Right now is not the time. I'll come back to you. And then you, you get down a session and you go do your work around whatever it was. Yeah. So um, meditation helps out a lot with that. It can. Yes. It can also be bypass. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What types of uh, meditation are you currently doing? Do you still meditate or have a practice? Um, I do still meditate. I uh, read, right now I'm spending a lot of time in um, just really basic loving kindness meditation. Uh, I read 
an article this summer, and I've tried to find it again and can't. Uh, multiple people have asked to see it uh, from Jack Cornfield, where he actually recommends a year of loving kindness medica- meditation towards the self before you practice any meta towards anyone else. Wow. Yeah, right? And, <laughs> and it really is this kind of, I can't, I can't give to you what I can't give to myself. Right. Wow. Um, and that's very powerful. Yeah. And it's been really powerful because it's can be really hard to sit in, you know, when I'm, you're used to maybe a, a 20 or 40 minute meta practice where it's 10 minutes towards, you know, all of these other people and, and you get mixed in there somewhere, but in, instead to make that all towards you mm. and to find, to, to notice the ways that I avoid it and to notice where's the hard edges in that. Yeah. Um, as, as, as I sit in that, where, where are the places and I'm not kind to myself? <laughs> mm. um, yeah. So that's, that's really where I've been uh, in terms of my, my practice at the moment. And, and so um, that too, I started on my birthday. So I'm coming up about five months in. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. Uh, have you felt or noticed any difference since then? Um, I'm definitely, there's definitely some, some awareness of times that I'm not as kind to myself. Um, and like like the inner critic, just, (laughs) yes, my my favorite meme maybe is my inner critic, right? Um, well, not only the, the inner critic, but but even the ways in which, um, you know, if I think about things like uh, Pema Chodron's idea of idiot compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Like how, how much am I giving, 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 and just not honoring my boundary of, yeah. of, of, of no more. Mm-hmm. And, and knowing that sometimes no more is, is really pretty kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back for a second to... Carl Rogers, and you talked about, you know, client-centered. And how he states, like, the the person of the counselor um, has more of a greater impact on the therapeutic process Mm -hmm. than the techniques or, or, you know, used uh, or or the skills. And he's describing the person as the instrument. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, you're talking about personal dispositions. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can have... Any different counselor using the same theory, same skill, well, maybe this ideally the same skill set, same techniques, but because they're a whole different person and they have different personal dispositions, the delivery is not going to be the same. So you write a little bit about that. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Well, we just had orientation, right? For new students. And and one of the things that I I said to them, you've probably heard me say this 50, 11 times, uh, is, you know, you're the tool in the session. And so it's, it's no longer about, here's your textbook, go do these things. And we're going to just check it off of a list. But it's about, who are you? What are you bringing? What are your growing edges? And, and how do we sharpen you as a tool? And know that you as a tool are going to look different from, you know, if you go back to your 208 class, everybody else in, in that class. Now, are, are there some foundational things that we want you guys all to have for sure? 
right? And, and, and more and more, we're starting to know more details around what that is. Um, but, but yeah, how do we, how do we help you sharpen who you are? Because again, it goes back to this idea of a present centered relationship. Mm-hmm. If the person of the counselor has to be present in the room and the person of the counselor has to know, okay, I'm really present right now. Yeah, I am here. Yeah. Yeah. I also remember you speaking a lot about empathy and you, <laughs> this is something you would also say, I think you would have a bunch of times where you don't do empathy, right? Empathy is a personal disposition. You don't do empathy. Um, it, it cannot necessarily be learned, but developed. Do you still feel that way or? Oh, I'm in a whole another place with empathy. Um, okay. Yeah, no, the research on empathy is pretty fascinating right now. Um, and, and, and pretty, uh, I was in a training this past weekend and I actually made a comment. I feel like we're probably going to be, because we banked so much on empathy, we're going to be the last holdouts on empathy. Now I'm not trashing empathy when I say that, but, but there's also at the same time, there's a lot of research right now that really challenges empathy. Um, and, and this, the, the question of empathy versus compassion. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my work is shifting toward away from empathy, away mm-hmm. from taking it on mm-hmm. to being in a place of compassion. Would you say empathy is still there, but not the most prevalent compassion is going to be here more so? Okay. Well, and, and, and it's coming from, it's coming from the research with Buddhist monks and, and literally different parts. I don't have the research in front of me and I, I will, I will misquote it if I try to get into too much detail. Um, Richard Davidson is the guy. So, so that's uh, one of the pieces and, and he's one of the guys who got to hook up Machu Ricard uh, to an EEG and, and, and asking them to uh, be in an empathic place versus a compassionate place and, and literally different parts of the brain fired. And there are lower rates of burnout in compassionate relationships versus empathic relationships. Mm. When the relationship is, is, is rooted in compassion instead of empathy, the burnout rate is actually lower, which actually means more wellness. Yeah. Right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's really thinking about, and, and I'm, I'm reluctant to say too much in terms of kind of exactly what this looks like, because I don't, we don't really know in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Right. But it's something I would be really kind of keep your toes in, like what's, what's going on with the research around compassion, uh, versus empathy. And, and how do we, yeah, um, because I think there's some potential really cool stuff and, and maybe even some, in some ways, some game changer stuff in terms of how we start to look at our relationships with each other, with clients, with students, with supervisees, with, you know, I mean, yeah. you, you go back to those teachers, well, think about being the teacher and being encouraged to have empathy with 35 students in your classroom right? Probably 75% of whom are acting out of some type of traumatic experience, whether that's, you know, fight, flight, freeze, completely dissociate, right? At at any given moment during the day. And and you're asked to kind of hold this place of empathy 
throughout. Oh, that's exhausting. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. I don't know many people who could do that. Mm. Um, and so, so I, you know, you raised a really good point around, you know, how, how we help even help teachers through those, those relationships, right. To, to learn to be present centered in, in the classroom. Um, yeah. and, and, and so I think there's some, some room there in that compassion discussion for that as well. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I, I recently listened to a podcast. I don't remember the gentleman's name, but he wrote a whole book on this and it was more, actually, I think it was called Against Empathy. Yes. That's the, the title of the book was. The you book. Yes. Against Empathy. And he's writing about some of these very things. I've not yeah. read it on my list. And he made some pretty good points in yeah. there. Um, I'll have to find that. So yeah, that is very interesting. Earlier, Dr. Pierce, you mentioned that um, we talked about burnout. Yeah. And uh, you wrote about how social relationships play a, play a critical role in wellness mm-hmm. and professional development, for, especially for counselors, relationships both in our profession and out of our profession, uh, specifically with colleagues. So you have the ones that you can vent to emotionally, <laughs> just vent, you know, I need to get this off my chest. And then then those you have a consultation relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how that helps with burnout? Well, what I heard from, from the folks I interviewed um, is that those were two different sets of colleagues. There wasn't overlap there. There were the, there was the folks I know I can you know, really go and, and consult with around certain things. And then there's the folks I can go, I, I just need to get this off my chest and, and kind of go. And, and in some ways I do see that kind of play play out for me as well. Right. I, I have my mentors who are the folks that I can go and say, listen, this is going on, you know, how do, what do I do with this? Right. And there's a venting piece of around that. And then there's the folks. Okay. Um, I think about, I, I bring her up a lot in class of, of Julie Duffy Dillon, my colleague, who's also the dietitian. Right. And if I've got somebody w- with food stuff, she's my go-to. Mm. Right. Like I know, um, you know, if I've got addiction stuff, Phil Clark is my go-to, right? That I'm just, I'm, I'm not really sure about something. Uh, so, so there's the, I mean, I know who those people are. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that they are really, and they are important. And I think so often, because when you're in that relationship, it's you in the, in the room and it can become very easily to, easy to isolate piece of writing I did a couple of years ago, some research with students talked about the loneliness of being in this incredibly intimate relationship with another person in the counseling session and yet feeling incredibly lonely in that. You know, I can say that even for me, one of my biggest challenges as a school counselor is, is uh, advocating what our role is. And having other, you know, educators and teachers and administrators understand that. And I've understood that this is an ongoing process that never ends. It doesn't, you know, you don't finish, you know. Nope. Uh, and when I work with students and consult with teachers and try to provide some feedback, the challenges become where it's like, I would like to vent to another counselor because they would right. more so understand what I'm talking about. 
or what I'm referring to. Uh, so when I read, you know, your piece on emotionally venting, um, an emotional release that really resonated with me because like, I totally understood where you were going with that. Yeah. Um, I, I think too, um, and this is something I've been really cognizant of, uh, probably mm. within the past past three months. Um, we also have to be careful out about in that is reinforcing what is basically a trauma bond. Mm. Um, because trauma bonds are really strong. And, and we can very easily convince ourselves that trauma bonds are these really genuine, caring, authentic relationships when really it's just this kind of constant recapitulation of, of trauma mm. in some way. Ah. And so, and, and for me, I think about that in terms of like 208, right? And so, so how do I go in this semester with this kind of new information around this and, and thinking about this in terms of just training um, and, and help students establish the relationships with each other that they need to yeah, in a safe space where they can, but still challenge and still push and still help them grow right in, in the ways that they need to. How do you do that without it being a trauma bond? Hmm. And so how I, do you do that? <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I, I can honestly say I'm, I'm not really sure that I've got a clear answer on that right now. Um, and I just in reflecting wonder how much we've allowed that to happen without really thinking, you know, is this, because we see growth, right. And we see people really kind of seeming, you know, seemingly taking responsibility for things and growing around things and that sort of thing. But I, I am left to wonder, are the bonds caring and, and genuine and coming from that place? Or are they coming from, oh, wow, we just really went through this really hard experience together. Now we're forever mm. bonded in that way. Yeah, that is very right? interesting. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard to Tell. Very hard to, to, to piece that out and separate that out. And so, so for me moving forward right now, that's something that I want to be really cognizant of. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I say I, I don't have an answer because it's something that's kind of developed over the past few months for me. But I, I think too, in terms of thinking about even venting relationships like that, I, I start to wonder you know, how much when we get into relationships where all we're doing is kind of constantly, seemingly opening all of this stuff up to another person over and over and over and over and over. And that becomes the crux of that relationship. It's mm -hmm. a trauma bond. Mm, right? Yeah. And it can look, it can look like a really, really it's a facade, but it can look like a really good, healthy relationship, right? Because it looks like you're just kind of putting all of this out there, but really it's just, it's a trauma bond. And it's not really facilitating growth in not any particular way. But it looks like it is. It's so, wow. it's so tricky because it looks like it is. That is tricky. That's kind of deceiving. You have to yeah. really be, like you said, <laughs> cognizant of that in your yeah. relationships. So that uh, just kind of comes as, you're, as we talk about this idea of the venting 
colleague and, you know, it, to kind of think about it too, in terms of, of students, right? How, how often do you, you come out of one of those really challenging relationships and, and then you go have that venting? And, and how many of your relationships with, with peers are actually around, around that instead of, does that make sense? Really oh, yeah. kind of caring, loving place. So, yeah. Yeah, no, no. As you say that, I, things, you know, relationships come to mind and it's, <laughs> you have to go back and look at all of those. Yeah. yeah it's kind of, yeah, it's, we all do it and it's so tricky. So yeah. Tricky. Especially if you're not even aware to look for that. Right. You know, mm-hmm. which I would say most people aren't aware of trauma bonds or things like that. Or really, I really want to love this person and facilitate their growth. You know, I don't think yeah. most people <laughs> approach relationships like that. <laughs> um, religion and spirituality. You're somebody I've always wanted to talk to about that and ask about that. So first, I mean... I know it could sound like a loaded question. I mean, but how would you describe the two in a, in a nutshell? Um, they're not mutually inclusive and they're not mutually exclusive. So, so I want to start there. Um, that um, for some individuals, religion, the practice of religion is an incredibly spiritual experience. For some, it's not. Uh, for some and individuals can have incredibly spiritual experiences that are not religious. Religion is a, a set of hmm, rules, dogma, an an outlined path, so to speak. Um, Sometimes there's a deity, sometimes there isn't, but, but, but there's, there's some type of, of outlined path um, that has a set of rules that has a set of rituals as well um, and those like I said those can lead to spiritual growth and a lot a lot of times they do it can also be hindrances to spiritual growth um, spirituality is more personal and so um, spirituality can be bigger than the rules, rituals, paths outlined by any specific religion. That's a really, really small way to look at the differences between um, those two things. Um, yeah, that could be a whole whole conversation in and of itself. But. Yes, it can. And uh, where I wanted to get at too was was spiritual bypass. Because you were talking about, you mentioned bypass earlier, but yes. I, I feel like I, you know, I don't know for sure, but I notice probably a lot of spiritual bypass <laughs> to avoid really dealing with something or addressing this significant emotional issue. Uh-huh. You know, what do you think about that? Do you see a lot of that or? All the time. Yeah. I, okay. and I find myself in bypass. So, so let me just say like, it's pot calling the kettle black here um, in this conversation. Um, yeah. And the more work that I do around it, the more I see. Um, and so, yeah, I, I actually took, um, even some time away from reading because I was using reading as spiritual bypass, right? Like 
yeah. So like I would dive into self-study, right. Of, uh, of reading, reading teachers and, and that sort of thing. And I was using that to totally avoid the really hard work that I needed to do myself around some stuff. And so, uh, <clears throat> I also, um, the ways I I'm, I'm seeing it right now. Um, and, and some of this comes from the trauma stuff is, is particularly yoga and meditation. Mm-hmm. And, and the more that those gain popularity in kind of the popular media, um, I think the quicker they are to be kind of usurped as, and, and, and jumped on as bypass. Interesting. And, and so the ways that I, I think about it, there, there have been some, there have actually been some really cool pieces of writing around yoga in particular, right? Which is now turned into this like multi-billion dollar industry. How much are we using really beautiful practices and again, myself included here, I, I actually stopped practicing yoga for a while for this very, very reason. I, I found myself in this space. And so one of my teachers encouraged me to stop. Said, stop practicing yoga because it's not, you're, you're using it, you're actually using it to dissociate. You're using it to bypass and you're using it to bail. And so how often do we do that? How often do we, do we jump to the yoga mat or the meditation cushion to bliss out? The yeah. goals of those practices, it was never bliss. It was right. never, but it was about diving in and softening and finding the edges. And it, it's, it's not a checkout from the real world. Um, it's, they were meant to, to bring us into the world. Help us learn to walk in our humanity. And so, so, you know, I think about, I was talking about this with a student just, just yesterday, but how often do we see like uh, folks who have a really hard thing in their life that they need to deal with, right? A a really challenging relationship or, or, you know, a space they need to set boundaries or somewhere where they need to say no, or somewhere where they need to, to really learn to find ground. And, and instead of learning to do that, they jump to yoga or they jump to meditation. Mm. Right. And so, so yoga and meditation then become the ways to not, I'm going to use this as like my coping skill to not have to actually do the hard stuff. Mm. And I, I really, this is where I actually really, really like Carolyn Mace's work. She's a medical intuitive, Mm. but she doesn't, uh, she doesn't hold back on things like this. And she talks about um, that most folks actually get to the point where they don't want healing because they reach that point where every power structure in their life has to change that that realizing that healing means taking full and complete responsibility for me and that means that every relationship in my life is going to change Mm -hmm. it's a big task it's a big it's a big task it's a hard task we don't like it and we will do everything we can to not have to do that including usurping 
mindfulness, yoga, and I'll include prayer in there. I think people use prayer in that way too quite a bit. That's what I was thinking. Um, to, to not take responsibility for how we walk on this earth. Right. When those practices were actually intended to help us take responsibility. Mm. That's a super insightful point you just made. Um, so I guess it'd be easier to just check out in the void. Yeah. Responsibility. I think the hardest part is the, is awareness. When do you start examining where you're at with things like that? Or where does that point even begin to, for one, to take initiative to say, I want to examine this part of my life. You know, I I, I don't know. Most people I know, Dr. Pierce, don't, I've never heard of the term bypass or spiritual bypass, you know? So (laughs) where do you even begin, you know, to, I'm not sure, but. Very interesting, nonetheless. Let's see if I have anything else here. Anything else that you'd like to share? Um, any any need that you see in current counseling programs, or just in general? Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's coming from my work, and it actually goes into the bypass. It goes into kind of everything we've talked about today is bringing the body back into the counseling session, back into the world. We spend a whole lot of time disconnected from our bodies. Um, and, and even when we talk about bypass, that's basically what we're doing is we're, we're finding some way to disconnect from, from how we, how we walk, literally walk on, on the earth. What comes to mind right now, when you just say, when you say that is social media. Oh yeah. right. I think that is huge right now, Mm. especially in talking about bypass. It's so easy to, if I have a, just a moment, a sliver of uncomfortableness, I'm going to go to my phone. It's right there. It's right there. And I can check out or just go on Mm -hmm. to where this whole other world where Mm -hmm. it may seem like, hey, life is happening here when really life is happening here. Right here. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's that's another way um, I'm noticing. And from my point of view, I think many, many people are bypassing yeah. in a particular way. Um, how often are we getting our, our relational needs met via social media, right? How about, you know, how, how's my profile picture look, right? How's, how many likes am I getting on, you know, whatever I've posted? And um, yeah. Yeah. Relational like, needs met. And it, it, and it just, it, it doesn't meet the need. No, I mean, it might might actually more so present a false sense of connection or relationship there. Yeah. You know, it's a quick, you know, you're filling this hole with something else and you get some, you know, hey, I want some quick validation right now. Let me go post something to get some likes. Mm -hmm. And it's like almost like I think you can become addicted to that. But I don't know. That's another whole conversation. (laughs) Like you said earlier, maybe we can have another one about something else (laughs) down the line. Thank you so much, Dr. Pierce. Yeah. You've been amazing and you're just a wonderful human being. Where can people uh, find or reach you? <laughs> <laughs> if they need to contact you. Um, probably the my work uh, email is best. Um, yes. I, I do keep my, since we've talked about social media, um, my Twitter account, I do keep, that's my professional social media account is, is my Twitter account. 
Um, I'm pretty sure I'm the only Marin Pierce on Twitter. So um, pretty easy to find there. Um, and then uh, my email address for work is lpierce, L-P-I-E-R-C-E at csufresno.edu. Well, thank you so much. You've been wonderful. And until next time. Okay. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are a number of ways you can listen and support it. You can subscribe to it via iTunes or Stitcher. You can also listen on SoundCloud or even directly from the website, www.mindfulowl.org. You can follow Mindful Owl on Twitter at MindfulOwlORG or sign up via email for new updates. Thank you for listening.